Welcome to the Energetics Exchange podcast, conversations with energy and climate experts. Please note that the information and commentary in this podcast is of a general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular individual or business. Listeners should not rely upon the content in this podcast without first seeking advice from a professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energetics latest podcast, uh, Conversations with Energy and Climate Risk Management Experts. I'm Dr. Peter Holt from Energetics, and with me today, I have Dr. Gordon Weiss, our own resident expert in energy, energy management and energy efficiency, combined with many years of experience in greenhouse gas and emissions forecasting as well, providing a combination of leading insights into what technologies and behaviour will Australia's future projections reside in. Welcome, Dr. Weiss. Thank you, Peter. So we're in quite an unusual time uh, of history at the moment, but let's cast our mind back to 2016. You were working at that point for the highest levels of government with some of Australia's national emissions forecasting work. How has Australia gone in terms of the emissions reductions that it's set out to do since 2016? I'd say that the country's performance has been mixed. There's no denying that Australia has uh, well and truly beaten its Kyoto targets. And uh, and that was for a a, uh, variety of reasons. We were given a very generous uh, target. And early on in the period, we saw a massive decline in land clearing, which was one of the sources of Australia's uh, emissions. And since that, the the period when we saw the fall in land clearing, we've also seen the decarbonisation or the beginning of the decarbonisation of electricity generation through the rise of wind and solar on the in the national um, electricity generation mix. And, and those two factors together have seen us, uh, as I said, significantly exceed our um, Kyoto target to the point where the Australian government is talking about using our uh, using what are called the carryover units, the amount that we uh, exceeded our Paris target, as something that can be used uh, to uh, count against our current Paris target. So just going to the first part of that commentary, our initial targets from the first Kyoto period was 108% from our baseline levels from 1990. Yes, it was. So how did we get such a generous target, which wasn't really a, a net increase? Yes, we, we did have, have a very generous uh, target, as you said, Peter, 108% of um, 1990 emissions. And I think that reflected some unique characteristics of Australia, a very large landmass, a developed nation, a very small population, and a particularly energy-intensive economy, such as the resources industry, the mines, the, the gas fields, um, and, and our um, delegation to the Kyoto Conference was able to argue that we should have, had, we should have such a, a generous target. Then if we go to the second Kyoto period, our target was a 5% reduction from our 2005 baseline levels. Is that correct? Uh, yes, yes. And so we had a modest reduction. What was the key things driving our emissions down in those times? That period since 2005 started to see the emergence of, of renewable generation in the electricity network. I mean, you have to remember that, that despite all of the opposition to the renewable energy target 
from particularly the Abbott government. It was actually the Howard government that introduced the first renewable energy target, albeit in a much lower setting than, than the current 20% or what became the, the 20% target. So that gives you an idea of, the, of how long the uh, renewable energy target has been active and as I said, in the, in the period since the Howard years, we've been seeing more and more renewable energy entering the electricity mix, and that has pushed down our emissions. So now that we're entering another uh, period of emissions reductions from a global basis, uh, the Paris commitment period that has arguably already begun, even though we don't have the rule book in place yet, Is there a case for Australia to really use our Kyoto offsets? The Australian government certainly argues that that we should be using the carryover from the Kyoto period against the Paris target. One can argue they're in a a minority. I mean, certainly energetics does not believe that uh, they should, and many other domestic commentators also don't believe that Australia should use the Kyoto units against the Paris target. And more importantly, the rules have not been set for the Paris target. So we don't know yet whether the international community will accept that. And it's true that only a handful of nations like Australia, I think Brazil and and one or two others, are arguing for using carryover units. And if if the final agreements don't allow it, well, then Australia is not able to able to use them. So, Gordon, earlier this year, you published an article um, both on our website and through Renew Economy, looking at a breakdown in disaggregating emissions. Now, I'm looking at a figure here which virtually shows a flat line when you've excluded the land use and land change emissions reductions. Um, So are we actually doing anything substantive to reduce our emissions? That analysis... uh looked at the, or acknowledged that the significant contributor to our meeting that what's called the the first commitment period of the Kyoto uh, Protocol, which was the 108% target, was the cessation of land clearing in a number of um, Australian states, uh, the most notable one being Queensland. And you could see it in the National Emissions Inventory, a dramatic drop from about 1990 to 1995, which is the cessation of of a lot of land clearing. What I did was say, well, if we took out land clearing from the emissions inventory, still use the 108% target, but see what Australia's performance was like, it was not such a uh, such a rosy period. It largely said that um, both in terms of the 108% target and the minus 5% target, that we missed our Kyoto targets quite significantly. So what ramification does that have then for our global standing? I, I think you, say that you, you could say that officially Australia met the Kyoto targets and met them quite comfortably. Perhaps the more important issue is to say, well, looking at our performance since 1990, the start year of the Kyoto Protocol, it's been dominated by reductions in land clearing, which aren't going to happen again. If anything, there's currently upward pressure to increase land clearing. 
and the beginning of a decarbonisation of the electricity network. Now, certainly that decarbonisation of the electricity network will continue into the decade covered by the Paris Agreement. And at the same time, we've, we have got a much more challenging target in the 26 to 28% reduction on 2005 emissions, which is our Paris target. So we won't have an easy win, a land clearing, a cessation of land clearing, and we have a much more challenging target. So we have our work cut out for us to meet the Paris target. In your figures, you had one exception where we did show a correlation between decreased emissions uh, around the 2012 to 2014 period. And you highlighted that correlated with the introduction of um, the carbon tax. What happened after that period? We saw a bounce back. Certainly, the, there was a rebound after the Abbott government repealed the, the carbon tax. It's sort of settled down a bit since then, but I think the period of the, of the carbon pricing was just one more feel like, factor in quite a complex story, which is, uh, which is describing how Australia's emissions have changed over time. So what you're saying really is that our economic growth hasn't really been decoupled from our emissions profile. Yes and no. We've seen some, you always, over time, always get a decrease in the emissions of intensity of economies because it just reflects the improvements in technology. Like one of the other, said one of the other factors in the in the mix is the rise of, of LED lighting because lighting is a significant consumer of electricity and so a significant source of, uh, of emissions. And if you go back a decade, you wouldn't really imagine that now we're at the state where nobody needs incentives to put in LED lighting because it's the cheapest form of lighting. So we've had some incremental improvements in efficiency that amounts to, from memory, about just over 1% a year. Is that correct? Yeah, it would be about that. So is it, is it enough? Do we need to do more, particularly now that we've reached another crisis point with the COVID pandemic as well? Are we going to see enough action in terms of emissions reduction to be able to meet our, as you pointed out, a much more stringent 2030 target that we've committed to of a 26 to 28% reduction, particularly if we don't use the Kyoto offsets? And then what kind of technology should we be considering as we look to rebuilding our economy? Well, you, you, you mentioned one, um, one key thing when, when asking, do we have a challenge? I mean, the mere fact that the Australian government is flagging the use of the carryover units from the Kyoto Protocol says that they know that projecting ahead business as usual emissions does not get us to the Paris target. So if we are not able to use those carryover units, as I said before, I certainly don't believe we do. Energetics doesn't believe we should, and many other commentators are of a similar mind. If we don't use those units, then we have to do more to meet the target. Now, those sorts of things could be accelerating the decarbonisation of the grid by bringing forward closure of, uh, of coal-fired power stations and, the, and their replacement with renewable generators such as wind and solar plus storage. And we saw re uh, just last week the release of AEMO's renewable energy re report that looked at, at how you could run the national energy market 
with a much higher level of renewables. We're beginning to see the electrification of transport in the form of electric vehicles and the electrification of space heating in the form of reverse cycle air conditioners and and heat pumps. And all of those will reduce emissions when coupled with an ever less emissions intensive electricity as we see with what is a business as usual, decarbonisation of the electricity grid. So, Gordon, we've spoken about emissions reductions from renewables, batteries, uh, alternative sources. They're commercially available and available now. We can see the trends towards electrification for space heating and uh, vehicles. But what about Australia's broader economy? What about our mining and resources sector or our manufacturing sector? What are some of the challenges that you think we must address there to decarbonise? Well, if you look at Australia's emissions, about a quarter comes from electricity, a quarter comes from transport, a quarter comes from stationary energy, and then in the other sector you've got agriculture, fugitive emissions and and the, the rest. Transport, we look at electric vehicles and everybody gets... You know, uh, rightly so, excited about electric vehicles, which really just electric uh, cars and, and light commercial vehicles. More challenging to electrify heavy vehicle transport because they're under different different um, constraints, different operating cycles. Equally uh, applies to surface mining fleets in, uh, in, in mine sites, very, very large vehicles, vehicles that operate all the time. So there's not the... 12 hours that you could plug a, um, a dump truck into a PowerPoint and recharge the batteries. So you've got, so they, they remain challenges to, to, um, to be solved. Then the stationary energy, which is energy for heating, energy used in, um, in industry. Mentioned before that space heating, which is heating buildings, that, that's, uh, there's clear, uh, pointed towards electrification as, as a way of, um, of reducing emissions from due to space heating, but industry uses gas in furnaces where, you, where you're looking at hundreds, if not thousands of degrees, and you can't do that all that easily with, with renewable alternatives or with electrification. Also, industry uses gas to fire very large turbines which run rotating machines and that's where all of the energy goes in LNG trains and LNG train is nothing more than a giant refrigerator and refrigerators need compressors and those compressors are run by very large jet engines which consume an awful lot of gas. It's finding low emissions alternative to those which is more challenging. This is why there's so much hype around hydrogen because Renewable hydrogen is one way generating high temperatures in a furnace or running a, uh, a gas turbine to turn a, a large compressor. So let's talk about hydrogen for a little bit. Hydrogen is a very obviously light gas. So does that what, what are the inherent challenges with trying to create a hydrogen economy? Well, it's, it's creating the hydrogen. I think one of the great ironies is that hydrogen far and away is the most common element in the universe. I think it's the third most common element on the surface of the Earth. However, it does not exist 
as hydrogen gas. And in fact, if you put hydrogen gas, all those balloons that you see floating away, when they burst, the gas just escapes from from the atmosphere. So you have to make hydrogen. So Gordon, you can make uh, hydrogen from electrolysis, so the splitting of water into hydrogen and oxygen, and also from steam reforming from uh, a variety of carbon-based molecules. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So in terms of the commercialization pathways, which ones are making the most promising or attractive opportunities for Australian industry? Currently, most of the the hydrogen gas that's made is made by steam reforming. Steam reforming of methane or other energy sources. I mean, you can steam reform biomass if you you want, but it's steam reforming of an energy source. However, if the energy source is a fossil fuel, that hydrogen contains embodied emissions. Even though it can burn and only produce water, it carries high embodied emissions. If you make the hydrogen from a renewable source, I mentioned biomass is one, but it can also be renewable electricity, then there aren't any embodied emissions, and so you get very low emissions. The challenge is that while we know about electrolysis for a long, long time, it is not cost-effective at the moment, and it's never been done at scale before. But the reason why Australia is, uh, is so excited by hydrogen is... Australia has the best um, renewable uh, resources in the world, a large, a large landmass, uh, subtropical, dry, so you've got all the, um, all the deserts, uh, similar to, to the likes of Saudi Arabia, but we've also got huge wind resources. Of course, the nation gets excited about somehow t- using those renewable resources to generate renewable electricity, which is then used in very, very large electrolyzers to generate hydrogen, either as a fuel or a feedstock. So in concept, we've got lots of opportunity from our renewable energy basis, our resource, natural resource basis. Then we can, we've got some complexities and commercialization challenges to produce hydrogen. But what do we do with the hydrogen once we've got it? You said we could use it as a, a feed stock or as a fuel source. Can we just put it in the pipes? What are the challenges about putting hydrogen into pipes? Okay, well, there are numerous challenges with shipping hydrogen. It's a very sneaky molecule being so small, so it, it'll find any the smallest of cracks and will seep out. It causes a uh, phenomenon called hydrogen embrittlement. Uh, so if you haven't got the right steels in your pipelines, the pipelines, uh, the metal becomes brittle because the hydrogen attacks it. And that's not good for pipelines. No, it's not good for pipelines. When you want to use it, there there are additional um, challenges. It's certainly true, and a lot of work's been done in this, that if you inject no more than 10 to 15% hydrogen into the existing natural gas supply, you can use existing burners, what are called burners, in, in furnaces or on a cooktop or a hot water heater. But once you go beyond that, you have to change all the burners. Very challenging piece of... Um, logistics and that's trying to ship the stuff in a pipeline so do we need an energy carrier so hydrogen's got some potential but then there's we're coming up against here now the the basic chemistry of hydrogen 
do we need some kind of energy carrier to help us out in the transportation issues? Well, you do if you want to send it overseas. Probably domestically, I suspect it'll be easier to, to adapt the pipelines. Shipping it overseas, unless you want to build a pipeline from, from Australia to Japan, Korea and China, is far more challenging and that's where the work is going into looking at the shipping of, um, of hydrogen. Talk of liquefying it, just as we liquefy natural gas, but hydrogen liquefies at a far, far lower temperature than natural gas, so it's all the more challenging. You can put it onto other molecules, and, and a very good example is, is ammonia. So you make ammonia, which has three hydrogen atoms for every one nitrogen atom, ship it as ammonia, and there are other carriers proposed as well. All of them carry uh, have the challenge that it takes energy to transform the hydrogen into these other molecules. And so it decreases the efficiency of your process. So we still need a, a lot of research and development work to go in understanding how we can actually move hydrogen around. Uh, but in some ways, we've got a bit of a pathway there because we can allow 10, 15%, as you said, into the existing networks before we get there. That's exactly right, Peter. So just to recap what we've said today, uh, I've heard that you say that we actually, as a country and a nation, aren't really doing too much to reduce our emissions. We've been having some restrictions on land clearing, which has benefited in the past, but we seem to be easing those. And it's quite a clear call that we need to be doing more and much more. We're investing in renewable energies and the commercialization pathways are quite present and apparent for businesses, particularly in things ranging from renewables right through to energy efficiency, lighting, for example. Now we're getting to the harder part and we picked up some technologies like hydrogen, for example, but I'm sure there's others. What would your advice be to government uh, now that they're rebuilding in this post-COVID-19 world? Uh, it's always challenging to, uh, to offer advice to, uh, to governments. In the post-COVID-19 world, things will be different. Maybe we'll have a look at our supply chains and start to think, ship everything overseas and rely on others to trans transform them. And one obvious area is in battery technology. Like Australia is, um, is seen as one of the major suppliers of the raw materials that go into battery, things like lithium, cobalt, graphite, and many are in, in the country are saying, well, why should we make the mistake of just shipping lithium carbonate to others to turn those into batteries? Why don't we make the batteries here and ship the uh, the batteries? I think that it was put very succinctly when somebody comment I heard when somebody said, oh, no, you can't do things in um, in Australia because our labour is too expensive and the appropriate response is, well, I don't quite understand that because I think we would be paying our robots exactly the same as what the Chinese are paying their robots. So the opportunities there to uh, to build renewable energy industries, and in that case it was, um, it was uh, battery technology. So renewable energy is a bit like Australia's mineral resources. You can't move the Pilbara to the markets. The iron ore has to be mined here and shipped to where it's turned into, into iron and steel. Same with Australia's renewable energy. We have the renewable energy. We can make the hydrogen here. And so if governments are looking at industries to rebuild Australia in a post-COVID-19 world, maybe look at industries associated with hydrogen. 
Thank you very much, Dr. Weiss. I think you've got clear indications that we need to invest more in R&D and we'll be becoming more resilient and reliant on Australia's own resources. Join us next time for more insights from Energetics Podcasts. Energetics Exchange Podcast, conversations with energy and climate experts.